Welcome to Cato Audio for January 2013. Happy New Year. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Doug Bandow evaluates permanent war. Philosopher Jason Brennan lays out what everyone needs to know about libertarianism. Ted Carpenter details Mexico's bloody drug war. Author Rob Goodman discusses Cato the Younger. And Lawrence H. White pushes for a less fragile banking system. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. If you had asked me 15 years ago if I thought that the marijuana would be legal anywhere in the United States, I would have said that it was highly unlikely. But if you'd asked me about five years ago, I would have probably changed my mind. And just this last year, we're recording this, of course, in December, but you're receiving it in January. Washington and Colorado now have legal marijuana. And this changes a lot of things. And here to talk about what has changed and what the future might look like politically, talking to Alan St. Pierre, the executive director of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, or NORML, and Tim Lynch, the director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. Gentlemen, welcome. Good day. So we'll start with you, Alan. You've been in D.C. for a while and have been working on reforming marijuana laws for a long time. When did you begin to suspect or have you always thought this is definitely within the realm of possibility that we have essentially taken perhaps the first tentative steps toward ending a a decades-long, brutal, bloody war on drugs? When I first started working at Normal in 1991, I walked in the door convinced that within a few years that marijuana would be legalized, and that was the delusion that many previous activists and two generations previously had come in and out of the door with. But I've stuck it out along with a cast of thousands over the years. And for me, I would suggest to you the demarcation line was probably when California where one out of eight voters live in this country, a economy that would place it sixth or seventh in the world all by itself. When it voted for medical marijuana in 1996, not only did I think that was sort of the first chink in the armor, but we can now see retrospectively from the data sets, that is the big leap from about 20% support in the United States for legalization to 36%. Today, we find it at over 50%. And I guess perhaps... This is true of a lot of social issues. Gay marriage, I think, is one. Uh, These anti-marijuana opinions are fairly weakly held. Is that fair to say? Yes, that the opposition that we find from the postmortem when we do these election analyses is that about 20 to 25 percent of Americans absolutely positively you would never get them to support legalization. About 50 plus percent of the country supports legalization, which means like a lot of things in America, you're fighting over about 25 percent of the population. Okay, Tim Lynch, obviously the fact that the states have done this has raised the ire of the federal government, the Department of Justice. And of course, President Obama has been, for all his rhetoric, very disappointing on uh, the issue specifically marijuana because he actually made specific pledges with regard uh, to that issue as a candidate and then again reiterated them as president. So can you describe sort of what the landscape looks like now with respect to the feds versus these two states and uh, probably a growing number of states down the road? Well, it's very interesting. You know, Proposition 19 came on the ballot in California two years ago to legalize marijuana. And everybody was watching to see how that would go. And the president and his attorney general said that they were against it and they were going to crack down if it was going to pass. 
Their strategy has really been to hope that these initiatives fail at the ballot box. And uh, it worked for them with California, but this past election cycle, it passed in Colorado, it passed in Washington, and there were enough people, enough support to get it on the ballot also in Oregon. And their hope has been that voters would reject these initiatives. But now that two states have passed them, it's put them on the spot. And they've been studying these initiatives, and there hasn't been much of a response yet as we're speaking here in December about what they're going to do. But I expect them to fight these things. I think they will be announcing some type of crackdown. They may file a lawsuit in court to try to challenge these things. Obama has just been a huge disappointment. He made all these sounds about, you know, maybe, you know, saying the war on drugs isn't working and these types of things. But I'm expecting a crackdown soon from this administration. Yeah, let's be clear on what President Obama did and did not do. He uh, said the war on drugs was not just wasn't working, was a failure as a not even presidential candidate. As a presidential candidate, he said that this is uh, something that he gave a nod to states and said this is something for states to work out. Then insisted that he would not be cracking down on medical marijuana facilities in states that had made that process legal. But of course, Alan St. Pierre, perhaps you can speak to this. The enforcement mechanism that the feds might use down the road here is cheaper than what a lot of people are predicting. That is going after the financial infrastructure that would provide financing for a lot of these projects. Is that right? Yeah. For example, the federal government can make this omelet a number of different ways. Many of us who have lived through when the federal government coerced the states to raise the drinking age uh, did so through incentivizing through the gasoline tax. As you indicate, the federal government can stop the financial mechanisms of the banks and credit card systems and ATMs from being used from this type of commerce. But in the end, it all seems a ridiculous fait accompli in trying to stop this legal commerce. An example being in Colorado for the last two years with just medical marijuana. And from normal's approximation, for every nine marijuana consumers in Colorado, one is a legitimate bona fide medical consumer. That leaves the other eight marijuana consumers, someone like myself who would use it recreationally, out in the cold, not paying taxes, not paying fees, the government not seeing the proper revenue. So at this point now, it's just ridiculously clear that When the state is involved as a player in the commerce, such as in Colorado, the federal government hasn't really done boo. But in California, where the Sacramento legislature has not stepped up and actually passed state regulation laws, control, what is called from seed to sale control, well, there's been seven to 800 raids over the years. So it's pretty clear. If the state is a player, the federal government is not really going to do much. I don't think, I mean, I don't disagree with Tim's basic political analysis because I don't think they have a choice. They have to try to do something. But if the um, Brandeis quote is correct uh, from the famous dissent that uh, the states are the laboratories of democracy, well, it's pretty clear. 18 states have medical marijuana laws, 14 states have decriminalized it, and two have legalized it. So the political upward pressure is clear. And in many conservative states, Kentucky among them, and I want to congratulate our state lawmakers for having done this, dramatically reduced penalties for small-time possession, which is where the bulk of these arrests uh, related to marijuana come from. And this, by the way, has also happened in states like in the last four or five years in Texas, Alabama, that without specifically passing what we call decriminalization legislation, they've passed called uh, doctrine LLEP, lowest law enforcement priority, which to your point just simply means it's decrim by any other word. Now, Tim, there are a lot of misconceptions about what these 
proposals actually did. A lot of lawmakers, people from law enforcement were arguing that, in fact, what Washington and Colorado were doing was violating federal law and that because the federal government is supreme on so many matters of law that these initiatives would just be thrown out. Right. There's a lot of confusion about this doctrine of federal supremacy. A lot of people think that because federal law says one thing, it reigns supreme over everything else. And that's just a misconception about the federal supremacy doctrine. What the states have done is they've said they're not thwarting federal law. That would raise a conflict. What the states have done is they say, we're changing our state criminal laws. We're going to take these things off the books for adults who want to use marijuana recreationally. The states control their state criminal codes. And we've seen this historical precedent before. This is how we started to move away from alcohol prohibition. States like New York said, we're repealing our local Volstead Act. If the feds want to enforce this stuff, go ahead and do it. But we're not going to use our police forces anymore to spend their time trying to investigate and arrest marijuana users. So the feds can say, and you know, you learn this in law school, that a lawsuit can be filed against anybody for any reason. So we may see a federal lawsuit saying what they're doing is unconstitutional, but it'll have to be worked out in court. And what we're saying and what the Arcado study is going to say is that eventually these will get tossed out. And the, what the states are doing is fine. The core of what they're doing is fine. It does get a little bit complicated when they start talking about taxing marijuana and trying to raise revenue. The feds might be able to stop that. But as far as telling the states that they can't repeal their criminal laws against marijuana users, that is not going to fly. Now, to analogize a little bit, our colleague Michael Cannon has said, imagine if the feds and the state are both punching you in the face and the state stops doing it. Well, <laughs> that doesn't it doesn't mean they're violating federal law. Alan St. Pierre? Well, indeed, if the positive conflict that Tim mentions regarding taxation is really the, where the rubber meets the road. There is no doubt in my mind that a state can go to a de minimis penalty of zero penalty for possessing cannabis. In fact, Alaska's had that penalty for well over two decades. Secondly, to put this into some perspective, which uh, most people who are not wonks really wouldn't think about, frankly, 99% of all marijuana arrests in the United States happen at the state and local level. Of the 800,000 annual arrests over the last 10 years, 99% of these things happen at the local and state level. So I really think it is a bit of saber rattling by the federal government when it ever talks about engaging in this activity. Why is this important? The feds really only go after large players. The unspoken rule is 1,000 plants or 1,000 pounds. So that eliminates, again, most all of us who are cannabis consumers. And second is the obvious jurisdictional problem, like if you're coming across a border or coming into an airport. Otherwise, all marijuana arrests in the United States are done at the local level as they should be. Now, our colleague David Ritgers has said, essentially in a call to conservatives, you guys need to decide how much you like federal power. Because conservatives were, I think, broadly with the majority in the Rage case, suggesting that, you know, this it's fine for the federal government to tell states what their laws can be about marijuana. But, of course, they don't like Obamacare. 
And one of the arguments that it, that Obamacare hinged on is the so-called uh, Commerce Clause, and that's what what uh, the Rage case hinged on. So, is this then an opportunity? This kind of issue of essentially pitting state authority against federal authority is this an opportunity for Tea Partiers, for conservatives, to really start to wash their hands of the war on drugs and say, "Look, let's just." Let the states deal with this. This is this is their issue. Let's let them handle it. Oh, surely. I think that this is a prime opportunity for anybody who is a card-carrying Tea Party individual. If they can't see the obvious hypocrisy and concern regarding a country where alcohol is legal and taxed, tobacco is legal and taxed, 400,000 pharmaceuticals are legal in the United States, that cannabis, which virtually kills nobody in the United States, is safer than any of the products I just mentioned, is now into its 75th year of illegality that 27 million Americans have been arrested for it since 1965. We have probably spent $200 billion trying to arrest, prosecute, and incarcerate people for it. If they don't recognize now that this is the time to make the clear argument that to marry the rhetoric about freedom, less federal government, more free market principles, this is that time. It makes no sense whatsoever to listen to any politician from any stripe talk anymore about supporting marijuana prohibition. Some of our friends on the right have been good on this issue all along. People like William F. Buckley and National Review have been critical of the war on drugs for years and years. But what we want to see now is some of these conservatives who might say, look, I'm against marijuana legalization, but I've always been a defender of the Constitution and the Tenth Amendment. And this is where their commitment to that principle is put to the test. So if you don't agree with William F. Buckley and Thomas Sowell and other conservatives that have recognized the failure of the war on drugs, I want to hear some more people say, I don't, you know, I'm not in favor of marijuana legalization, but I've always been a defender of the Tenth Amendment. And this is where their commitment is put to the test. And so they would say, this is something the states can do and the federal government shouldn't not rush in and try to override state prerogatives under the 10th Amendment. Tim, when I talked to Roger Pallon on this particular issue of the feds dealing with this problem, he emphasized the fact that what we're dealing with is a federal police power that uh, is at this point a self-licking ice cream cone. That is, it, uh, you know, you just add water, it makes its own gravy. So what, is, what about the, this federal police power seems to be highlighted by the fact that you know, you have states saying, eh, we don't really care. And the Fed's going, oh, no, 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 you should really care about this. And the people closest to the experience can say, eh, we don't care. Right. Well, this idea of a federal police power is something we've been arguing against for years. I mean, we try to remind people that with alcohol prohibition, at least there was enough respect for the Constitution. You have to remember, they amended the Constitution to allow the federal government to pass laws regulating alcohol. We never had that with the war on drugs. They've just been pushing this dubious interpretation of the commerce power that has been stretched so far it, it could mean anything. I mean, when you're talking about the reach of federal power, so like we saw in the Rage case where it could go into somebody's backyard, they're growing some marijuana plants. If federal power could, under the Commerce Clause, reaches that far, then there's really no limits on federal power. So some conservatives, especially Clarence Thomas, made this point in the Rage case, and uh, some other conservatives have recognized it as well. Because if you stretch the commerce power that far, then the federal government is assuming a police power, which the framers of the Constitution would have been shocked about. I mean, it's easy to easy to forget the uh, the three in the Rage case in the dissent were Rehnquist, Thomas, and O'Connor. 
making a, a pretty strong argument uh, against uh, federal involvement. So on this other issue, you're talking about prohibitions parallels, states stepped down, but also the fact that the federal government decided to, to move this way. One of the key arguments that was made in Washington, was made in Colorado, was made toward the end of prohibition is revenue. And so do you have a sort of an idea, Alan St. Pierre, of what the picture looks like with respect to revenue for state governments that might want to consider this? There's an excellent white paper in last month's state tax notes by a former Ways and Means attorney named Patrick Oglesby from North Carolina who runs a webpage called New revenue.org. And he has two basic estimates here. In Colorado, they're already doing $60 million a year in revenue from medical marijuana. He believes they can double that to about ultimately the state taking in about $200 million per year. He's got a much more expansive estimate for Washington, which is going to be taxing marijuana at an eye-popping 25%. And they have a range from 540 to $600 million per year of taxes in Washington state. All right. I think, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. I think we all look forward to a time when Republicans are loudly saying that the marijuana tax is too high and should be reduced. So Alan St. Pierre, Executive Director of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and Tim Lynch, Director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. We have vast resources at Cato's website on the war on drugs and have for many, many years. You can check those out again at Cato.org. The United States has been the driving force behind a bloody, decades-long international war on drugs. The military crackdown and subsequent devastation in Mexico makes clear that the prohibition policies in the United States require serious examination. Cato's Ted Galen Carpenter, in his new book, The Fire Next Door, examines the price that Mexico continues to pay in this war on drugs. He spoke at the Cato Institute in November. The cartels are adept at offering politicians, law enforcement personnel, business people, and others a very stark choice, plata o plomo, silver or lead. In other words, take a bribe and let us do our business, let us conduct our affairs without interference, or we will remove you forcibly. And increasingly, it is not, we will remove you, we will kill you, It is, we will torture and kill you and your family. That tends to be a fairly effective strategy. The sadism of some of the violence in Mexico over the past few years is absolutely astonishing. Decapitation has become a favorite tactic. Grotesque tortures, another tactic. I'll give you one example of just how the sadism has run amok there. Authorities discovered a body in the streets of one of the Mexican cities and nearby discovered a severed head. Now, this unfortunately has become all too common. But one unusual feature of this was that the head had no face. They discovered the face a little while later, a couple blocks away, meticulously sewn onto a soccer ball. Now that requires a real degree of sadism. This is not something that is typical of uh, organized crime syndicates that are eliminating people, kind of nothing personal, it's just profit. 
This is the kind of sadism that you've come to expect from civil wars where there is an ethnic, religious, or racial basis. And that is now becoming a very common feature in Mexico. Increasingly as well, the violence seems to be to generate sheer terrorism, not just to maximize the ability to conduct business. We also see the spread of violence, both north and south from Mexico. There's a lot of controversy about the extent of the spread of violence into the United States. There's been a, a fair amount of media hype about this. And more dispassionate analysts have pointed out, look, we don't have an epidemic of drug-related violence from Mexico spilling over the border into this country. And there's a fair amount of evidence to support that restrained view. For instance, a number of the southwestern U.S. cities have violent crime rates that are lower than the national average. So one would look in vain for evidence that there's a massive spillover of violence from Mexico. However, I think some caution about that is warranted. The problem of spillover seems to be much more serious in the rural borderlands rather than in the southwestern cities. And we're seeing examples of that in uh, almost all of the southwestern states. There certainly is growing fear in Mexican-American communities along the border. Associated Press correspondent Paul Weber reported from Fort Hancock, Texas, with the following statement. When black SUVs trail school buses around here, no one dismisses it as routine traffic. And when three tough-looking Mexican men pace around the high school gym during a basketball game, no one assumes they're just fans. Mexican families fleeing the violence have moved here or sent their children. And authorities and residents say gangsters have followed them across the Rio Grande in a campaign of intimidation. And again, there is evidence to support that proposition. Certainly, there's growing fear among farmers and ranchers in the borderlands. A celebrated incident occurred a couple of years ago. A man named Robert Krentz, who owned a ranch in southern Arizona near the border, and uh, one day, authorities found him shot to death. Evidence at the scene indicated that he very likely intercepted a uh, scout for a Mexican drug shipment that was coming north, and he paid with that with his life. We have incidents in Texas in the, along the border as well. Farmlands in the Rio Grande Valley near the small town of La Jolla were burning stalks of sugarcane for harvest when four masked men on all-terrain vehicles approached them. The armed men surrounded the crew and ordered them to leave the area. Dale Murden, the farmer who employed the crew, said he had no doubt that the masked men were drug traffickers. They hide stuff in there, Murden said, referring to the dense fields of sugarcane, and try to intimidate anyone who gets too close. The incident on his ranch occurred just two weeks after a Dalco County employee was similarly threatened by masked men in order to stop clearing brush along a small river near the border. Later that year, men in a pickup truck fired shots at a foreman on a ranch adjacent to property owned by country music star George Strait. Texas ranchers and farmers, and now that I'm living in Texas, I can testify to that personally, contend that episodes similar to the ones Murden's workers experienced are growing 
more and more frequent. But whatever the truth about the extent of the spillover of violence north into the United States, the more immediate problem is the spread of violence into Central America. Both the Sinaloa cartel and the Zetas now are very active in that region. The drug gang turf fights that have so plagued Mexico are now being played out with increasing frequency and ferocity in Central America. And the gruesome trophies, especially severed heads, are now showing up with greater frequency as well. Honduras and Guatemala are especially at risk. According to Guatemala's federal prosecutor for narcotics offenses, the Zetas have gained control of four states and nearly half of Guatemala's territory. Kevin Casasamora, former vice president of Costa Rica and later a fellow at the Brookings Institution, put the figure at a slightly more modest 40%, but that included a large northern region known as the Petén. The Zetas have roadblocks there, he noted. You can only enter the Petén if the Zetas allow you to. Now this raises the prospect of one or more of the Central American states becoming a narco state or a failed state. When a government cannot control major portions of its territory, that is a sign of trouble. A banking system where individual players can be too big to fail is a system that lacks rigor. Economist Lawrence H. White would like to see a banking system that can withstand a good shakeup. He described elements of such a system at the Cato Institute's 30th Annual Monetary Conference in November. Now, I'm up against a professional consensus when I say that banking systems are not naturally fragile. Many economists and certainly many regulators, and yesterday I had the pleasure of hearing uh, Timothy Geithner speak at my university, will object that it's a fool's errand to try to make the banking system anti-fragile because banking is naturally fragile. That is, it's ordinarily fragile in the absence of government guarantees. And in that case, the best you can do is to mitigate fragility. And of course, the standard source of this argument or the most cited model of banking in the economics literature today is the Diamond Divvig model, which depicts a very fragile bank a depositor run will very easily break it, and a run can very easily occur, triggered merely by self-justifying worry that others will run. And then a form of deposit insurance is shown to fix the problem, and it's assumed won't create other problems. And a lot of people take this model and the large literature built on it as showing that any modern banking system is naturally fragile. And people whose knowledge of banking history is limited to the U.S., and the, the panics that uh, Jeff Myron just mentioned find it plausible to think that banking is naturally fragile because there were financial panics in the U.S. But if you take a more wide-ranging look at theory and empirical evidence, you find that banking is not naturally fragile. I quote Calamiris and Gorton on this. You see that banking panics are not happening everywhere. They're not inherent in the contracts that bankers write. It depends on the kinds of contracts they write and the institutional structure within which they operate. Now, I could, and I have in other places, picked apart the Diamond Divig model, but here there's a more general point to make, which is the view that banking institutions are naturally fragile is rather implausibly anti-Darwinian. That is, it defies the principle of natural selection or survival of the fittest. 
if financial institutions are inherently prone to collapse, or those that are inherently prone to collapse, should be expected to collapse, given a few centuries at least, and then they would disappear over time, while sturdier intermediaries should be expected to survive. And so the inherent fragility view of banking just can't explain how modern banking has survived, much less flourished, in the seven-some centuries since it emerged around 1200 AD. I guess it's eight centuries now, but seven centuries before the introduction of government deposit guarantees, lenders of last resort and uh, national deposit insurance. You can see anti-fragility in historical free banking regimes, by which I mean systems where legal restrictions were at a minimum, legal restrictions and legal privileges were at a minimum. Australia, Canada, Chile, New England in the 19th century, Scotland, Sweden, Switzerland. These systems were not without bank failures, but they emerged from bank failures chastened and stronger. So they fulfill the criterion of getting better aftershocks. But a system that relies on bailouts is not going to be that kind of system. And I cite a famous example from Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations when he talks about the failure of a bank called Douglas Heron and Company, better known as the Air Bank. Hugh Rockoff has described this as the Lehman Brothers of its day. <laughs> the bank failed spectacularly, but nobody rescued it. It was associated with a recession, but there was a quick recovery from that. It brought down some small banks, but not any of the larger banks in the system. And the system as a whole, this is the important thing, recovered quickly. So the system began growing quickly again in a healthy way. And a report on the causes of the crash a few years later, led to their understanding that it was imprudence that brought it about and helped make bankers more aware of what they needed to do to avoid imprudence. And one historian says there were fewer complaints of incompetent behavior in respect of provincial Scottish banks for the remainder of the century. Right? So that's an example of what I mean by uh, anti-fragility. Now, that's just one example, of course. We need to study lots of examples to make this more persuasive. But our current system is one in which legal restrictions and privileges have made the system fragile, and I don't need to argue that at any length. We've observed it. It doesn't depend on whether you think uh, Lehman Brothers should not have been allowed to close. A system where you can't allow Lehman Brothers to close is clearly a system that's too fragile. To eliminate uh, the moral hazard of gambling with other people's money, with the expectation of taxpayer money, we need a system in which the government clearly has no legal authority to bail out insolvent firms, insolvent financial firms or other firms. Tying the government's hands in that way would actually reduce fragility. If everybody knew, as John Cochran has written, if everybody knew that Lehman wouldn't be bailed out, then the fact that Lehman wasn't bailed out wouldn't have changed anybody's forecasts about the probability of them being bailed out, and so it wouldn't have uh, accelerated any panic. We all know that Dodd-Frank bill does not credibly end too big to fail. I go into some of the details about that. Now, it's true that we have a fragility in U.S. banking history, but principally in the 19th century because there were legal restrictions that prevented banks from credibly assuring their depositors that they had enough assets to withstand and they were well enough diversified to withstand shocks. Banks were very poorly diversified because we didn't allow branch banking. Today, the U.S. banks are weakened not by restrictions of that sort, but by privileges. The moral hazard problem created by 
deposit insurance and made, of course, even worse by too big to fail. We haven't achieved robustness, much less anti-fragility, until no single financial firm is considered systematically critical or too important to close. It has to be credible that a promise to make no bailouts will be kept. Caricatures of libertarians are often rooted in what people believe is in a libertarian's heart, rather than their beliefs about how best to express broadly shared values. Jason Brennan, in his new book, Libertarianism, What Everyone Needs to Know, answers questions people have about libertarian ideas. He spoke at the Cato Institute in November. So let me talk today about what I see libertarianism as. And before I get into that, what do the critics think it is? What's their view? And there's a story that you get about libertarianism for most academics, and they don't mean to paint a cartoon of it. They mean to do justice, but nevertheless, they do in fact paint it as a cartoon. And the way the story goes is like this. Libertarians are people who axiomatically assume that everyone has very extensive rights of self-ownership. They don't have much of an argument for this. They just sort of assume it because it seems plausible to them. From this, they build up a number of ideas. You get the idea if you have an absolute right of self-ownership, then you have an absolute right to acquire property in the external world, and this cannot be challenged for more or less any reason except maybe to avoid disaster. And from that, you get the conclusion that you must have minimal government or no government. A good example, and probably the person who's at fault for making this the popular view of libertarians, is a Marxist philosopher at Oxford, uh, recently deceased Jerry Cohen, who wrote a book called Self-Ownership, Freedom and Equality, a critique of Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia. An interesting fact about this book is that the word self-ownership appears exactly once in Robert Nozick's book, and it appears on basically every page of Jerry Cohen's. That might tell you something about the accuracy of the critique. Brian Barry, who's known for being curmudgeonly and not very nice to people who disagrees with him, has the following to say about libertarians, in particular the famous political philosopher Robert Nozick. He says, Robert Nozick proposes to starve or humiliate 10% or so of his fellow citizens, if he even recognizes that term, by eliminating all transfer payments to the state, leaving the sick, the old, the disabled, mothers with young children, with no breadwinner, and so on, at the tender mercies of private charity, given in the whim and pleasure of the donors, and on any terms they choose to propose. Jeffrey Sachs says, for libertarians, compassion, justice, civic responsibility, honesty, decency, humility, and even the very survival of the poor, weak and vulnerable, are all to take a backseat to liberty. What's the message here? Libertarians are crazy people. They're people who think liberty matters and it's the only thing that matters. Liberty though the sky falls. Liberty though we're all doomed. We must respect liberty and nothing else. Is that right? And that seems to be what the critics think. The view is libertarians hold that the little people don't matter. I mean, you remember the scene in uh, Dirty Dancing where someone pulls out an Ayn Rand novel and says little people don't matter. That's the message. Hooray for selfishness. Libertarians are people who, you know, are, like what is to be libertarian is to be really obsessed with making sure nobody touches this. This is mine. Leave it alone. Get your hands off my wallet. <coughs> Hooray for big business. You know, we're out there to make sure that Apple doesn't get taxed. And also libertarians are crazy about markets. Markets work perfectly all the time. We won't listen to anyone who says otherwise. So in short, what are libertarians? They're mean, impractical, overly cynical, and at the same time, overly utopian, selfish ideologues. That's what the critics think, right? That's, when I see the critics, I'm just like puzzled by that because my first encounter with libertarianism wasn't with the foaming at the mouth sorts of libertarians, and there are some out there, and maybe, maybe there are some here today, I don't know, so if you're <laughs> one of them. It was with this book, Henry Hazlitt's famous book, Economics in One Lesson. And what it really was was a lesson on ideological responsibility. 
The message was, whenever you're thinking about policy matters, whenever you're thinking about economics, you have a bias to look at the immediate direct effects of a government policy or any other policy in a small group of people. You have a bias to ignore the unforeseen consequences, the long-term effects, or the effects on people that are not sort of directly affected, the sort of indirect effects. If you're going to be smart about this, you need to look into all of these things and weigh them appropriately. You know, and really, he's just regurgitating and rehashing the message of Frederick Bastiat back in the 1800s from this famous article, or um, I say, The Seen and the Unseen. Right? And to kind of carry this over into modern day things, when you take a typical microeconomics textbook, it'll often say there's a market failure, the market under these conditions is going to fail to reach full efficiency, and government can correct the problem. When they say that, though, what they mean is more or less an omniscient angel can correct the problem because they kind of stipulate that the government in question is competent to do what to fix the problem and also that like the people in the government will be willing to fix the problem, that they will use the power to, in good faith rather than for own their, their own purposes. But in the real world, we don't get to stipulate that. In the real world, we don't get to stipulate that governments are like that, that they're always fully competent or that they always act in good faith. And that makes all the difference in what we want government to do. So I see... Smart libertarians are people who say there's market success and there's government success and we have to weigh those. And there's market failure and there's government failure and we have to weigh those. And you know what? Smart people on the left, that's like their view too. It's just a disagreement about what the ultimate weight comes down to and that's largely empirical. So my goal in libertarianism is to eliminate the caricature. It's to eliminate the cartoon view. I'm not trying to make, convince people to be libertarian. I'm just trying to make libertarianism seem reasonable to skeptics. I also want to show that there is a diversity of thought within libertarianism. It's not all one thing. There's class, what I call classical liberals, what I call hard libertarians, what I call neoclassical liberals. And there's a lot of diversity and disagreement within those camps about what justifies different institutions and what things they will end up advocating in the first place. And in particular, I want to show that libertarianism, contrary to the caricature, is a humane philosophy. And even if you think it's wrong, and you're free to do that, even if you think they're mistaken about how things work, I want you to realize that it's a humane philosophy. The people who advocate it normally do so for humane reasons. Right? And to some degree, I want to put the left in the defensive. I want to say, if you care about the poor, how come you're a Democrat? Although America's all-volunteer military absorbs much of the burden of war, military conflicts impact our entire society. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which are projected to cost more than $3 trillion, have also led to changes in domestic politics that have curtailed civil liberties, expanded intrusive government practices, and bypassed congressional war powers. Cato senior fellow Doug Bandau discussed the price of permanent war, at a Cato Institute student forum in November. Some of us are old enough to remember a time when we weren't actually involved in shooting wars, but if you look over the last 10 or 20 years, we have constantly been at war in many different places. We live in a very different world. It's, it's one where I think there are extraordinary consequences that we have to consider. In many ways, I think our current foreign policy can be called an imperial one. And the question is, you know, what, what does America get out of empire? And to some degree, I think it depends on who. You know, clearly, if one is part of the, the establishment, if one is uh, part of the Washington uh, elite, if one is you know, interest groups that have uh, you know, things at stake, then war can be very profitable. War can be quite advantageous. 
You know, if you're the Secretary of State, it's a lot more fun to be Secretary of State in America where you wander around the world telling everyone what to do than imagine being the foreign minister of, oh, I don't know, Greece, where you don't tell anybody what to do. You know, you're kind of concerned about your own country and that's kind of it. You know, it's not nearly as much fun. So there are a lot of advantages, I think, within kind of Washington and those who kind of support kind of things that Washington does. But how about the general public? You know, there was a statesman who I think encapsulated the issue quite well. He was asked about the question of war and people going to war, and his comment was, why, of course, the people don't want war. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war when the best he can get out of it is to come back to his farm in one piece? Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor for that matter in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it's the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it's a democracy or a fascist dictatorship or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. And the person asking, well, well, wait a minute, how about democracies? I mean, you have elected officials, people have a voice. His response was, oh, that is all well and good, but voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. That was Hermann Goering while he was awaiting hanging at uh, Nuremberg. And he was interviewed by the psychiatrist who was talking to him at the time. And it strikes me he, in fact, got it quite right. Common people have very little reason to want war. They pay the cost. They die in it. They don't see all the grandiose visions and dreams that come out of it. Now, of course, you know, those who promote war and uh, argue that we have a lot of advantages. I mean, we get security. We kill the bad guys. We're the preeminent power. We create stability around the world. We have lots of allies. You know, there's an argument about you know, trade. I mean, if you kind of create this stable international order, we have more trade. You know, we have influence. You kind of hear this, that we can kind of wander around the world kind of manipulating things and getting things out of it. We promote uh, democracy and freedom, humanitarianism. I mean, all of these things kind of get thrown out there. But I think it's important to step back and recognize the disadvantages, because very often the disadvantages seem to get lost in the discussion. You know, they, people don't like to mention those quite as much. The first is cost. Now, your military spending is the price of your foreign policy. If you want to do a lot around the world, you've got to have a big military. That's just the reality. You know, if you don't have you know, carrier groups, you don't have armored divisions, you don't have marines, you can't go and intervene in other countries. If you want to bomb other countries and you know, bring them to heel, you've got to have a military. That costs you money. And it's conventional forces that are quite expensive. If you don't do this right, the people who really you know, catch it are those who are in the armed services. My nephew is a SEAL. I mean, you talk about the kind of carbon fiber tip of the tip of the spear. I mean, these are people, if you're going to send them into things, you better have the backup for them. You don't send these people off and kind of leave them. Well, that's why the United States accounts for roughly half of all military spending on Earth. Very little of that money is genuine defense. Most of that is offense. The projection of power is what's expensive. The wars that we've gotten into should be viewed as unfunded liabilities. We spent around $850, $860 billion so far in Iraq. You know, that is kind of running down because we don't have troops there anymore. But the long term, we will still spend two or three trillion dollars on the Iraq war because of all the injured we will be caring for for the rest of their lives. The injuries that came out of that war in terms of loss of limbs and mental injuries with the IEDs mean we are caring for people for the rest of their lives. This is another unfunded liability. You know, you do something right now and 30 years from now we will still be paying for it. You also see the role of inflation and economic regulation. And this is particularly in the bigger wars we fought, World War I, World War II, where the government, you know, how do you, how do you pay for this? 
You have inflationary monetary policies. The government comes in and takes over industries. You regulate. You seize control of the railroads, any number of other things. You know, what government does is to kind of make the system work in a wartime environment, gets very involved economically. It's the national security state. You know, that we live at a time where not only things like the Patriot Act, which kind of become these Christmas trees where everybody says, I have a great idea, I've wanted to do this for 10 years, and now I have an argument for it. There's terrorism, now we must do this. But you think we live at a time where a president of the United States declares that he can have arrested an American citizen in America and have him locked away in a brig without access to the courts or attorneys. It's an extraordinary claim in a republic. Or that the president can sit down with his hundred closest advisors and have video screens and slides and decide who to kill. Or you just kind of decide, you know, it's kind of like the old Roman emperor, you kind of do this or this. Well, that person I think deserves it, this one really doesn't, and these can be American citizens. Now, when you're dealing with terrorists, there's some difficult decisions to make, but still, one should feel kind of creepy about this in a democratic republic. Randolph Bourne said that war was the health of the state, and we see it in cases like this. It certainly lies. You know, not only dead Americans, which matter, but also dead foreigners. You know, the grand humanitarian adventure in Iraq, I think the starting point for estimates of dead Iraqi civilians is probably around 200,000. Now, we didn't kill them, but we blew up the place, and they died in the aftermath. That is a consequence of action that we have to take into account, that unfortunately war tends not to be very humanitarian. And one wants to be very careful when one wanders around the world loosing the dogs of war about what's going to happen to the society within which those dogs charge. We also see in the lives of American uh, military personnel the disruption of their lives. The reserves, for example, who've been treated in ways they never expected, where suddenly they go called up again and again. And the, you know, the pressure at times for a draft. If you really want to have an imperial policy and patrol the globe, how do you manage that? How do you patrol other societies? How do you occupy and transform other societies? But I think what's you know, very important here is it doesn't even serve our security interests. Now, a security interest would be the most obvious one. Go to war because you think it's necessary for your security. But I think it's important to recognize you know, that if you look at you know, kind of what you get, you know, that the wars you know, typically don't help us very much. That what you find is we get drawn into war. Military action tends not to stop where it is. You know, the assumptions that people make is these are going to be easy. You know, in World War I, as they marched off to war, people were cheering. I mean, they had noted cases where, for example, Russian royalty were saying, we're all going to meet in Berlin. Of course, these are the people who were slaughtered by the Bolsheviks. It's like, oops, that didn't work out very well. There's a famous former U.S. senator from South Carolina, Senator Chestnut, and he offered, you know, as the Civil War was breaking, he said he would drink all of the blood that would be shed as a result of secession. That's another one of those oops, you know, 620,000 lives later, maybe that didn't work out quite as well as he wanted. We think of Vietnam, where, I mean, early years, Americans presume this is going to be quite easy. Iraq was going to be a cakewalk. That very often these things turn out far, far worse than one expects. The costs are far, far higher than ever imagined. And even the steps that kind of short of war tend to get you into wars. Alliances, we hope, will, will prevent war, but alliances also act as tripwires. They act as transmission belts of war. If you guarantee the security of another power, you get drawn in. And World War I is a fabulous example. You know, in uh, June 28th, I think it was, in Sarajevo, you know, some Serbian nationalist decides to off the Archduke of Austria-Hungary. Now, this is not something that really should concern the United States, shouldn't be of a great interest to Japan, really shouldn't have been that important to, uh, you know, even Great Britain. But lo and behold, it's the few, it's the, the lighter, you know, the flame that hits and the fuse that goes to the bomb, 
because that means Austro-Hungary has to go after Serbia because it's state terrorism, the Russians have to defend Serbia because it's an ally, the Germans have to go to Austria's defense because they're allies and they're encircled, the French are allied with Russia so they come in, the Brits don't like this, they don't want German domination of the continent, and ultimately America shows up in the conflict and so is Japan and lo and behold we have a world war because of some damn fool thing in the Balkans. Point is these alliances can be extraordinarily dangerous. You know, we think they're going to deter conflict, but very often what they do is they lead to conflict. They expand conflict. Marcus Porcius Cato, known as Cato the Younger, was a Stoic philosopher and a Roman senator, and the last man standing when Rome's republic fell to tyranny. His blood feud with Caesar began in the chamber of the Senate, played out on the battlefields of a world war, and ended when he took his own life rather than live under a dictator. His defense of the Republic inspired Cato's letters in the 18th century, and those letters form part of the foundation of the Cato Institute. The new book, Rome's Last Citizen, examines the life of Cato the Younger. Its co-author, Rob Goodman, spoke at the Cato Institute in November. Let me start with a brief selection from the preface. General Washington paused and studied his boot prints in the newly thawed mud. He took a deep breath of spring air, closed his eyes, and released the breath. He was pensive. It had been a year of long marches and small success, and winter's toll on his troops had been heavy. Food was scarce at Valley Forge. The men had to make do with a tasteless, tough, fire-baked combination of flour and water. Hundreds of horses were dead, some from sheer exhaustion, and others wasted away with hunger. The shelters the men had built could hardly handle the freezing and melting snows of the Pennsylvania winter. The entire camp seemed to be soaked and full of men yellow with jaundice, feverish with typhoid, or doubled over from diarrhea. At the end of that bitter winter, before an audience packed into a converted bakery at the Valley Forge camp, soldiers dressed in togas mounted a rickety stage and began reciting blank verse. Washington did not have many means of inspiration at his disposal, but he did have drama. And the play he chose to stage for his officer corps was the story of a Roman senator named Marcus Portius Cato the Younger. For much of the captive, bone-tired audience, the story was a familiar one. Washington, along with a good part of the world's English speakers, counted Joseph Addison's Cato a tragedy as a personal favorite. By the time the play made its debut at Valley Forge, it had already been staged 234 times in England alone, with 26 different editions in print, it had become a mandatory text for every well-read man of the day. On the front lines of his first war, a 26-year-old Washington wrote that he would rather be home, acting a part in Cato himself. Washington's peers studied and memorized the tragedy. They quoted it, consciously and unconsciously, in public statements and private correspondence. When Benjamin Franklin opened his diary, he was greeted with lines from the play that he had chosen as his motto. When John Adams wrote love letters to his wife Abigail, he quoted Cato. When Patrick Henry dared King George to give him liberty or death, he was cribbing from Cato. And when Nathan Hale regretted that he only had one life to give for his country, seconds before the British army hanged him for high treason, he was poaching the words straight from Cato. George Washington, John Adams, and Samuel Adams were all honored in their time as the American Cato. And in revolutionary America, there was little higher praise. When Washington wrote to a pre-turncoat Benedict Arnold and said, it is not in the power of any man to command success, but you've done more. You've deserved it. He too lifted the words from Addison's Cato. 
How did the legend of a Roman who walked the halls of his Senate 1,800 years before America was born speak so powerfully through the ages? And why did Washington, in the darkest moment of his career, choose Cato to lift the spirits of his army? Who was Cato? So who was Cato? We're going to talk a little bit about that today. But before we ask who Cato was, I think we also have to ask why Roman history and why does this history matter? And I can think of a few reasons. First of all, I think it matters because it's fascinating. We've been amateur Romanophiles for much of our adult lives. But for people who don't come to it with that presumption, Roman history matters for a couple of other reasons. We think it matters because it left such a deep imprint on the way the founders of our country and the founders of other liberal democracies think about democracy, representative government, elections, liberty, and all these concepts. For them, the Roman Republic was the quintessential republic of virtue. The Roman Republic was the model for a political state. We talk about Athens a lot, but the founding fathers essentially wrote off Athens. They thought that that kind of Greek democracy was a disaster. When they looked for a model, they looked to the Roman Republic. But we also think that the Roman Republic is fascinating because the issues that are so important in our politics play out even more starkly in Roman politics. I, I think a political scientist said that politics is really nothing more than the study of who gets what when. And those issues were incredibly stark in Roman times. They dealt with issues that we would be extremely familiar with, issues like welfare, like inequality, like a debt crisis, both public and private, like an expansionist foreign policy, like a changing culture under the pressures of, I think, what we can call without too much anachronism, globalization. So we can learn from how Romans of Cato's time dealt with these issues. And I want to caveat by saying that Cato and Caesar and other figures from that time do not track directly onto American politics. But we think we can learn a lot from the way they lived their lives and from the general principles they applied in the way they lived their lives. So Cato really comes to the fore in Roman politics at a time when the Republic, as we know it, and the Republic that had essentially become the hegemon in the Mediterranean world, was breaking down from the inside out. It was a time of tremendous upheaval and change. It was a time of cultural change. Because of the Roman Republic's conquests, a lot of culture and a lot of wealth was filtering into Rome and changing the society that had been stable and fundamentally conservative for centuries. Cato dealt with this essentially by presenting himself as someone out of the Roman past, someone who incarnated the founding virtues that made the Roman Republic what it was. So that was one major change. Another major change was the beginning of factionalism in Roman politics. Roman politics had always been tumultuous. There had always been very overt class conflict. There had always been resistance between the plebeians and the patricians. But what happens in Cato's time is that we see the first political factions. These are not really political parties in our sense. They didn't have organizations or headquarters or party platforms. The people that led these factions were from the same social strata. They were the elite of Rome. They were all slave owners. They were all from the wealthiest segment of their own population, but they had different constituencies and different agendas and oftentimes different marriage and family alliances. The faction that Cato became the leader of and Cato became the public face of was called the Optimates. This is one thing that the Romans did that we still do. They have very self-flattering party names. The Optimates meant the best men. And I'm not sure who came up with that name, but it was a very good piece of PR. The point at which Cato rises to become the public face of the Optimates is really the crisis over Catiline's conspiracy. Catiline was a radical populist who um, gained a lot of public support on a platform of abolishing debts, 
on a very populist economic platform. But he also had plans to essentially stage a terrorist campaign against the Roman Senate that would end up capturing and killing much of the Roman Senate, would even ally with some of Rome's foreign enemies. So Cato, who had at this point developed a reputation as a Stoic and as a model of the virtuous Roman past, comes to the fore during Catiline's conspiracy by successfully <coughs> arguing against a young Julius Caesar. The issue is whether the people who've been captured in this conspiracy should be executed without a trial on grounds of national security or whether they should be given a trial. Julius Caesar succeeds in persuading the Senate that precedent demands that the Roman way is to give these people a trial. But Cato, after Caesar had swung the Senate to his side, delivers the most forceful speech of his life, essentially arguing against what he considers a moral decline of the Roman Republic that leads to Caesar's position. He's able to sway the entire Senate back over to his side for immediate execution. And at this point, Caesar, when he has lost the debate, storms out of the Senate, tries to disrupt the proceedings, fails, which leads to the execution of the conspirators. But more importantly for our purposes, leads to the lifelong enmity of Cato and Julius Caesar. The historian Sallust, who was a partisan of Julius Caesar, who was one of Julius Caesar's biggest fans, still could not keep himself from admiring Cato. He said that while Caesar grew famous and popular and powerful through his generosity, Cato grew famous and popular and powerful through the integrity of his life. Cato was a man who lived his principles. He was one of the most principled, most uncompromising politicians that we know of in Roman history or of any other history. And that's one of the things that attracts us to Cato. Even though he probably wouldn't have agreed with us, we wouldn't have agreed with him, his priorities might not have tracked on to 21st century America, but we can admire the way that he lived out the principles he stood for. But there are also consequences to this. When we talk about the triumvirate, which is essentially the alliance of Julius Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus, who were two of Rome's most ambitious generals and Rome's richest man, an alliance to essentially put control of the Republic in the hands of three men. Well, what did these three guys have in common? They really hated each other. But what they had in common was that each of them had been individually alienated by Cato. Cato had used his mastery of the Senate and mastery of Roman politics to stymie their personal ambitions one by one by one until they realized that the only way to overcome this force was to team up. So Cato's principle both made him an incredibly inspiring, personally magnetic leader in his times, but it also created an enormous opposition to Cato that leads in many ways to the death of the Republic. Another factor in Cato's life is that while he establishes an incredible example by the way he conducts his life, there are also times in which he runs away from power. When Cato ran for consul, which is the highest office in the Roman Republic, in an attempt to oppose Julius Caesar, Cato essentially refuses to talk about anything but Caesar, which he thinks is the most important item on the agenda. And yet the Roman people don't want to hear about this. They want Cato to distribute bribes, like other Roman politicians did. They wanted to hear about his war record. They wanted Cato to go around with an entourage and pretend like he knew people that he didn't even know, which was what politicians do today and what politicians did then. <laughs> but Cato was having none of that. He said that someone like me would not change his manners to please anyone. And if I lost, well, that's just fair. Unfortunately, because Cato has this habit of running away from power when, by his own terms and his own understanding of liberty in the Republic, it could do the most good, this essentially damages the Republic's cause. And the point at which civil war becomes inevitable is the point at which Pompey and Caesar, who were members of the Triumvirate, then develop a, uh, a rivalry that turns into war. Just before that war, they were trying to negotiate and attempt a face-saving compromise that would result in Caesar getting out of the way province and being able to keep his army without actually crossing the Rubicon 
and invading what is considered Roman territory. When this face-saving compromise is on the table, Cato insists to Pompey, Cato was in the room at the time because he's one of the most trusted members of the Senate, Cato insists to Pompey, you're being deceived, you're being a fool, don't listen to Caesar. Pompey listens to Cato instead of to Caesar, and the civil war is what transpires, and the fall of the Republic to Caesar is what transpires. So we think this story is both about the benefits and about the pitfalls of living a life of incredible, almost superhuman integrity like Cato did. And of course, Cato ended his life in much the same way as he lived it. When the forces of Pompey, what was left of the forces of Pompey, fled to Africa after Caesar's great victory at the Battle of Pharsalus, Cato was left essentially alone, without very many allies, without very many troops to resist Caesar's advance. Caesar would have offered Cato a pardon. Cato would have been able to live on in the Senate. He could have been the face of the opposition for the rest of his life. He could have been what we call a tolerated crank. He could have stood up and given these stim winders against Caesar for the rest of his life, and Caesar would not have minded because it would have made Caesar look very moderate. But Cato says, Caesar's a tyrant. Tyrants do not have the legitimate authority to pardon. Caesar cannot pardon me. I would rather take my own life and make a stand about the importance of the Republic as it existed than accept Caesar's pardon. So what Cato does is he takes the book Phaedo by Plato, which is essentially the story of Socrates' own suicide by drinking hemlock. Cato calls for it very publicly. He reads it over twice. He dismisses everyone from the room. He calls for his sword, and then he stabs himself in the guts. And then the thing that really puts Cato over the top in terms of historic residence and the way his suicide has lived on, in fact, you see it on the cover of our book. There are a few books that have spoiler alerts right on the cover, but this is how the story, this is how the story ends. At the point that Cato had stabbed himself in the guts, it was not a fatal wound because he had broken his hand punching someone in the face. He, he was that kind of guy. It was not a fatal wound. Surgeons were called in to stitch Cato up and to save his life. Cato comes to and has the presence of mind to rip open his wound. I know. <laughs> to rip open his wound and cement his death, but also cementing his legacy as someone who was so principled that even when it led to his death, he would follow those principles all the way into suicide. After his death, Cato is turned into a political symbol of all sorts of causes he might not have identified with. The first presentation of Cato after his death is by Julius Caesar, who paints a billboard of Cato ripping himself open and has it paraded through the forum as part of his triumph. This was supposed to be a great moment for Caesar, but amazingly, as people saw this billboard going by, they started booing and hissing and groaning because Cato had become a martyr. Even for people that didn't agree with him, he had somehow transcended the politics that he was a part of. Cato is an enormously important figure for the cause of Roman republicanism, even into the reign of Nero. People who resisted Nero used Cato as an icon. Lucan, who was uh, a, both a poet and a leader of the resistance to Lucan, said that in a restored republic where we have the proper gods, we would worship Cato instead of the emperor. And Cato is also an incredibly important figure in the history of Christianity, both as a Christ figure, as someone who sacrificed himself for his beliefs, but also as sort of an antichrist, because Cato was the face of Stoicism, which was a philosophy that Christianity borrows a great deal from, but also needs to distinguish itself from. So the way the Christians set themselves apart is by taking a lot of Stoic language on board, but also by criticizing the figure of Cato as someone who is vain, as someone who is self-absorbed, as someone who violated the commandment against suicide because he wanted to make himself revered in a way that only God should be revered. 
So the place where I'll leave the story is after essentially a millennium of being denigrated by the Christians, the person who really saves Cato's reputation and brings us in the story that Jimmy's going to take up is Dante, because Dante has a new perspective on classics. Dante believes that Cato, as he said, is the best possible symbol of God that we have, because he was someone that was willing to sacrifice his life, and he was someone that stood for freedom, which Dante understands as Christian freedom. So there are only four pagans who are saved from hell, in, or say from hell or from limbo in Dante's Divine Comedy. One of them is Cato, who is the guardian of purgatory, stands at the bottom of the mountain and legalistic as ever, scrutinizes people's lives and decides whether or not they can go up the mountain to eventually ascend purgatory and go into heaven. And Dante, in fact, says that on Judgment Day, at the end of history, Cato will get to go to heaven along with the rest of the faithful people. This is an amazing turnabout, but it's also in line with the way that Cato lived his life. So the story about the way that principle can both be self-limiting, but can also endure for millennia and turn Cato into an incredible model. He might not have liked the way that his legacy was used. He might not have liked the way that he was turned into a political object. But this is a man who, inf who influences our perception of Roman times, our perception of the political values that a lot of us hold dear, and even the perception of religion. Take advantage of the Cato Institute's winter book sale now through the end of February 2013. Many of Cato's most popular books are on sale, and all e-books are 50% off. Go to cato.org slash store slash winter sale and enter winter 13 when you're checking out to apply your savings. That's all for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.